Welcome to APQC Podcasts. If you like what you hear, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lauren Trees, and I'm here with APQC Chairman Carla O'Dell. And over the last few months, Carla and I have done a few podcasts that we're calling Knowledge in the News. And it's really about things that are going on in the wider world and how they're potentially impacting knowledge flow and knowledge management. We've talked about supply chain disruptions, vaccine IP, the labor shortage. And the story that I want to talk about today is a little different and admittedly a little bit out of left field, but I hope you guys will bear with me. Earlier this year in June, Lena Khan became chairperson of the Federal Trade Commission. She's a legal scholar who focuses on antitrust, and she's also 10 years younger than me, so that hurts my head a little bit. But we're here to talk about KM, and to do that, I want to say a little bit about Lena Khan's work and what it might mean for her to lead the FTC. She talks and writes a lot about breaking up big tech companies and why we need to move away from the consumer welfare standard, which is essentially this idea that you need to show consumer harm to mount any kind of antitrust case. In other words, you know, a monopoly has to lead to higher prices. And the problem with that in the modern world is that in the services that are quote unquote free, like Google or Facebook, it's basically a non-starter. You can't have a monopoly. And Khan and, and other advocates of what's being called hipster antitrust, a term I love, are, are arguing for a broader definition of antitrust that includes looking at things like how consumer data is collected and used, that there are other kinds of harms out there. And about now, you're probably asking, Lauren, that, that's nice, but what the heck does it have to do with knowledge management? And that's fair, but I do feel like part of this conversation is about the breadth and depth of data that's being collected about all of us all over the world. And one argument against these tech monopolies is that when one company has so many different lines of business, they're able to collect a lot of data about each person and then combine it in some weird, powerful, and potentially detrimental ways. For example, when you're determining whether somebody should get a job or access to credit or all these things that are foundational to our lives. And I do think that this move towards hipster antitrust, if you will, it is indicative of a broader societal shift. People are gradually becoming aware and concerned about the lack of control they have about data about themselves and the ways in which that might come back to bite them. And I think that's especially true for younger people for whom this ship has not fully sailed yet. So if there's one thing that I've learned from you in the last 15 years, Carla, it's that consumer trends eventually transition into the enterprise. We've seen that again and again with things like social media and so on, but they don't always translate the way you think they will. So I wanted to ask you, do, do you feel this thing that I feel where people are finally getting worried about the volume and variety of data that companies are gathering about them? I learned, well, the short answer is yes. I think, once again, the uh, privacy issues that they're starting to become aware of in the consumer space are translating into the uh, workspace. But I think it's going to be even stronger here for a lot of people. And I'll tell you why I think that is. And really, there's three reasons. One, employees have become sensitized to this issue because every time you go onto a responsible website, it's going to tell you now what cookies it collects 
and, and you can look at and see what they're using for and opt out or opt in, you know, if you choose to. So employees, it's like anything else. If, if you become aware of it, you kind of want a little, you, you'll respond to it. So for example, if you tell me how much energy I'm spending in my house for air conditioning and you send me that information every half hour, I might change how much energy I spend for air conditioning. The same thing about awareness uh, and concern about uh, how data is being used. So they're more, becoming more conscious and I think they're also becoming more possessive. So that's one reason I think the trend is, is accelerating. The second is that uh, from a workplace perspective, bring your own device, of course, has been what we've done forever, but that further blurs the lines and increases the risk to the employer as well as the employee because of the third reason, employers are going to have a, and do have an enormous amount of data about us. Where we were born, what our social security number is, what health status or insurance that we're using, um, how many keystrokes I'll use today, who I'm emailing with, uh, who I'm talking to. So enormous amounts of information. Um, and I think employees are, going, are becoming more and more aware that, that they're doing this. So on the other hand though, you know, if we get make employees extremely aware and very possessive and they don't want us to have that information and there's legal issues there we'll talk about in a minute, um, who gets to control that. But if they become very concerned about it, that could be very detrimental to uh, knowledge management applications that require large amounts of data to customize and personalize. What information we send to you, what we insert in the workflow, et cetera. So I think you've got some other recent data that says we better figure this out. I absolutely agree. I, that is one of my biggest concerns. And when we look at our knowledge management trends research that's just coming out, um, the user experience theme that people most want to deliver for their internal customers in knowledge management is in the flow. They want knowledge to be embedded in the way that people work, in the processes and projects. They also want that user experience to be simplified, to be anticipatory, and to be personalized. And you need data to do all of those things, um, you know, and you need it to be able to rally for you and, and kind of deliver just in time, just enough, just for me. But it's so challenging if people are really concerned about how their data is being used. So I, I think there's so much balance, both in the consumer world and in the business world. There's a huge upside to giving people data about you and allowing them to deliver relevant products, relevant knowledge, relevant anything to you in the context of what you're doing. But there's also this trust issue and the nefarious side of it. And so I think it's just figuring out how you balance those two things and make people comfortable with it. And how you do that in the consumer world may be a little bit different than how you do it in the business, but I think there's probably some themes that resonate across there as well. Because mm -hmm. that's really the question I have is, you know, if people are getting more aware, more savvy about what they share, um, you know, what are the implications for, for knowledge management? And I think that the first one that comes to mind for me is that disclosure is going to be a lot more important. Companies are going to have to be more transparent about the data profiles they're putting together about employees, who has access to that data, and, and how the data will be used. As an end user, you can see this as a feature or a bug. When a company says, 
we're building an understanding of you and, and how you use enterprise information so we can recommend things for you to read or people for you to connect with. There is a positive part of that that sounds great. I want to find great connections. I only want to read stuff that's relevant to me. We are all very conscious of our own time. Um, but, but there's also an element of that that can sound incredibly creepy, especially if employees don't know what's being monitored and why. So, so we have to disclose. I think, first of all, it probably makes some sense right now to make a distinction between the very private and personal, uh, personally identifiable data that the HR department has about us and has in its digital systems you know, you know, age, social security number, health insurance, et cetera, uh, job and roles, and then what is available uh, because of our behavior, our electronic behavior, our digital breadcrumbs we leave behind. And you can keep those two systems separate. The question is, can you customize and personalize somebody's experience if, uh, you know, for search and so on, if you don't know what their role is, in the organization, where they are in the process, how many years they've been, uh, you know, what kind of level of expertise they are, and so on. So it's those that cause a little bit of the gray area, not so much the personal data, which does get protected and can be protected in different systems. Yeah, and I think that people are aware that their employers know that HR data about themselves, but, um, you know, they have a whole nother set of concerns about to the extent to which the company is monitoring what they're emailing to people, what they have in DMs, what they're sharing in private groups. Um, you know, I think right now a lot of us operate under this false sense of privacy that what we talk about quote unquote privately at work is actually private. And a lot of the limits on monitoring right now, I think have less to do with ethics and more to do with just capacity. Um, you know, if you need a human to sit and read all of that, then you're just not gonna monitor it. But as AI gets better at this, we're, we're probably in for a bit of a reckoning here. Um, you know, and even if organizations aren't setting out to, uh, you know, monitor us to, you know, in a punitive way, those things are going to surface, even in some of these knowledge management applications, if you're trying to pull that data together. Um, you know, one of the things that really interests me is we see this again and again in the research, younger employees do not come in with the same set of assumptions about this fake privacy, if you will, they're much more likely to think that the organization is monitoring what they say, whether the organization is or not. And I think the downside of that is that they're much more likely to move those conversations elsewhere so they're not monitored, but they're also not secure. They're happening in text messages or on um, you know, WhatsApp or something like that where the company has no visibility and no control. Um, you know, and it's, it's very hard because these conversations tend to be very fluid. You might go into a particular platform to say something you don't want to say on the corporate network, complain about your boss, whatever. But it's very easy for that conversation to evolve into something that's talking about intellectual property or about projects or things like that. So I think once you get people out of the knowledge sharing environment that you have, it's very hard to make sure that that's, it's just the stuff you don't need that's happening there versus uh, you know circling back into more work-related topics and issues. 
Um, so I, th I think if companies really want to keep conversations in that digital workplace, um, there needs to be clearer boundaries about what's monitored, who can see what, um, you know, and what can be used against people explicitly and, and implicitly. I mean, an effective workplace has always included offline private exchanges for a wide variety of reasons. People need to vent. Um, you know, they need safe spaces to bounce half-baked ideas off colleagues. Um, you know, they need places to have sensitive conversations that maybe aren't appropriate for broad consumption for a wide variety of reasons. And so, you know, I, I think making some kind of space for that in the digital workplace and making sure that those things are not going to end up on your, you know, your permanent record, if you will, is, is critical. I think one of the things that we're going to find is that companies are going to have to establish some sort of uh, employee privacy policy. And that is, a, you're seeing that more and more. You can find templates for that on the web. And that's really a policy that needs to be set jointly with knowledge management, HR, IT, and the senior leadership, as well as I would say, a sample of employees to review it as well. And the purpose of that kind of policy is need to address what's going to be personally identifiable, what they are going to monitor, what they're not, what is going to be monitored by a machine and looking just for red, you know, what I'll call red flag words or issues that could be racist or derogatory or in any way defamatory toward anybody or anything. Um, and that to actually dig deeper the policy, uh, into somebody's conversations, there has to be due, uh, reasonable cause and due process for that. So I think you're going to start seeing more and more of that in these, in these policies. So uh, as long as KM has a seat at the table, I don't necessarily think they want to be the administrator of it because this thing is fraught with peril, but they need to have had a voice because we've got to have information in order to pay, give people a good experience. Well, and as a knowledge management team, you have to be aware of the potential legal, ethical, HR implications of the data you're collecting and how you're using it, and at least build those partnerships so that you're making good decisions so that you are in line with an employee privacy policy if it's in place, um, you know, or that you're just aware of, of the legal limitations and, and rights that, that employees have and, and that the company wants to impose. Right. This is a rapidly evolving area. It's going to be fascinating to see where we are with this in a couple of years. Absolutely. And I think as we think about our digital environments as, as KMers, as knowledge managers, we always want to ensure that we are encouraging as much open sharing as possible. Share unless you can't, rather than having privacy be the default and you're only opting in to share in particular situations. And part of that is obviously recognizing what should be public, what data should be available to be aggregated in mind, what is maybe you're only looking for red flags or certain keywords, but you're not analyzing all the context, and what should be completely off the grid and what is okay to be completely off the grid. Ultimately, successful KM is about engagement, and that requires trust. We've been having that conversation for at least 15 years. If people don't feel safe expressing themselves in the digital workplace, then they're likely to share a lot less. They're going to go into that default not share mode, especially when it comes to innovation, creative abrasion, maybe some ideas that are a little bit scary or might rub people the wrong way. Um, you know, and, and those are probably the things that you most 
most want to facilitate if you're focused on an innovative culture, a learning culture where you're you're failing forward and, and failing fast and, and making things happen. So as organizations and as KM teams, we, we have to seek that balance and communicate our intentions and policies in a way that makes sense for everybody. And I think it's a it's a moving needle and that's why we have to be so aware of what the consumer trends are and how the enterprise trends and policies might follow suit. So once again, this is Lauren Trees. And this is Carlo Dill. Thanks for listening to this APQC podcast and please visit apqc.org to learn more and have a great rest of your day.